Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest has just become the CEO of a business writing over $7 billion in gross premium a year, which, if it were a standalone company, would make her one of the most powerful female CEOs in the global insurance industry. This is a major business unit that has been through a substantial amount of change and refocusing of strategy in recent times, but which is now well-placed to resume profitable growth as favourable market conditions continue. The business is QBE North America, and the executive is Judy Wood. Julie has an insurance career in its third decade, with senior management experience in broking as well as underwriting. This gives her a well-rounded perspective on all facets of our industry and means that our discussion spans a broad spectrum of what is happening in the North American insurance market, as well as everything that QBE is doing to maximise its opportunity there. Julie is really engaging and down-to-earth, and has a very approachable manner, which helps fill this podcast full of insights and candid exchanges. So if you're looking for a detailed update on the largest insurance market in the world from an important and dynamic participant in that market, I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Judy, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. For anyone who doesn't know you, why don't you give us a quick background about your career to date and how you've managed to end up in your current role? Yeah, absolutely. Recently joined QBE back in February, so this is all new to me, both the company as, as well as the role of CEO in North America. But I, I started my career in insurance and probably like most people, somewhat fell into it back in 1997. I was looking for a job out of college and took this one and thought I'll do this just for a little bit in time. And then, you know, really found that I liked it quite a bit. The people I interacted with and overall, really, the interaction I had with different companies. But I started out in Detroit, coming out of the University of Michigan, and took it in with Zurich as an underwriter. Really underwrote middle market type business and, and moved into Chicago and continued to pursue that for a while. Till um, I had an opportunity in the early 2000s to move into a management role. A lot of that, I give credit to working for a leader that just was willing to take some risk and and push me in a position kind of early in my career to take on leading people who were frankly more experienced with me. But it gave me a really good perspective of the market in a broader area of the Midwest underwriting large casualty business. So from there, I ended up taking a position in Atlanta in 2007. At the time, I was pregnant with my second child and a little nervous how that was all going to work out. But again, I was fortunate enough to have an individual at the time, the CEO of North America Large Casualty, take a risk on me to move down to the South and lead a casualty division there, really running my first P&L and, and understanding a whole new marketplace and learning both the region itself, which is the big region in the South, and then also learning the whole new broker world of, of that part of the business. So from there, I took a couple other job career changes along the way, moving into a few things around their global accounts at the time. In 2014, I moved to Marsh, which was just a, a wonderful place for me to get a much broader perspective of what clients need across multiple lines of business. You know, understanding that it wasn't just casualty. Was it like that jump going from underwriter to broker? I've only ever been a broker and uh, broker to journalist. So what's that jump like? You know, it's a question I get a lot and mostly because it's different perspectives, right? And there's people out there I think have gone from insured into perspective of either brokerage or underwriting company. You know, in a lot of ways, what I was doing was if you're leaning into the job correctly as an underwriter, you're trying to appreciate the risk aspects of a client. The only difference was I was really focused in one area of risk when I was looking at casualty. 
when I had moved into the global role at Zurich, which was their representation of their largest clients that represented small client base, but a large part of their premium, I was starting to understand client holistic issues around risk and the different lines of business. So brokerage was similar. You know, you're trying to negotiate in, you know, with carriers, understanding all the different aspects of a client and the challenges. At the same time, you get a better appreciation for the power of the marketplace. If that was the biggest thing that was shocking to me. I think when you sit at the carrier side, you think, oh, well, if I didn't write that account, the person was irresponsible in pricing or irresponsible in coverage. When I said in the brokerage side, you said, wow, like the market's super powerful. There are a lot of solutions worldwide that offer different options. There's a lot of different perspectives of how to solve challenges. There's a lot of different options and really start to appreciate kind of the trusted advisor nature that the broker representative has with the client and understand much more than insurance challenges that clients face. They face a whole variety of different issues, which was super helpful. It's the whole client, isn't it? When you're an underwriter, you can only see what you're doing and you can't always see what you can sometimes obviously within within subscription market, you can see a little bit of what other people are doing, but you can't always see what the final order terms were and you know who wrote it. Whereas obviously as a broker, you always see it. Yeah, sustainability challenges, labor challenges, union challenges, all sorts of things outside of the PNC world, right? I was less sensitive to benefit challenges, which I became much more sensitive to in brokerage, you know, the challenges that that presents. And so it was very helpful to have a little bit more empathy on, on what clients are facing, what their priorities are. You know, at times you feel as if what you're doing is should be super prioritized based on the level of risk it potentially presents to a company. But there's a lot more going on in you know, any individual situation that sometimes we're not privy to. So it was very helpful and it prepared me well to understand, I think, just larger client and middle market client challenges that helped me in my job today. You brought us up to your role Today, that's a very well-rounded preparation for a role like this, but you're now on the underwriting desk, but obviously a big management role, QBE North America. QBE North America has been through quite a lot of changes and a lot of transformation. When you're out talking to all those brokers around the country, how would you like it to be perceived by them? You'd say, well, I know what QBE North America is really all about and what kind of business they're looking to write. Yeah, so I've been in the position of CEO for 60 days. So I am looking at developing that largely in conjunction with the team I work with, you know, overall in both North America, both globally. But, you know, in the early days, we're committed in three segments. And, and those are the segments in which we predict that we will continue to stay committed to, right, from a crop, specialty line of business in our commercial market, servicing different size clients. My goal is to be really a market leader in each segment that we do. And what that looks like to me is having a really clear brand on what QBE is, what's our appetite, and having very strong customer service. And to me, customer service is an area that often gets overlooked in the industry. And having a, a culture within QBE that leans into the importance of what that looks like for brokers, as well as our clients when they have a claim. So that starts to look at like, we're quoting properly, we're asking the right questions, we're making decisions in an expedited manner, we're issuing policies. So that starts to become our brand in each segment that we operate in. And we're better at defining what risk we want and don't want. And those are aspects that, while seem quite simple, can be real barriers to understanding what QB is as a brand. So that's our focus to stay committed in the segments we're in, but to start to enhance really our brand, our appetite clarity, and overall our customer service model in that brand. Certainly sounds like your broking experience has really kicked into that because yeah, <laughs> certainly from my own experience as a broker, that is one of the things that it's nice to know that you feel that you know 
if you're sending a risk to an underwriter, at least you haven't wasted your time or their time by sending them something that's actually out of appetite and you had it never been quite communicated to you. Those kind of things are far more valuable. They don't show up in numbers, do they? That They show up in better hit rates and other things over time. But it's really interesting to hear you say that. So what's the market like? I spend a huge amount of my time reading about the North American market, writing about the North American market. It's fascinating at the moment. So tell us what the state of play is at the moment. The market is challenging, right? You know, in regards to rate for clients that think have seen a lot of fluctuation, right? Depending on the line of business, they've also been faced with rate really presenting itself as a need across multiple lines, right? So we've been used to maybe it's showing up in one line, such as property following a cap, but we continue to see challenges in the market on the pricing adequacy and overall around coverage challenges, which really stem from inflationary issues, whether that's inflation because everyone's values are different than what they were three years ago, wage inflation as well as social inflation, and the general intensity for claims to be litigated has gone way up. And those type of awards within that area have become much, much more severe. The frequency of severity claims is concerning in our liability line. And obviously, in the really the management lines in DNL, we've seen a tremendous fluctuation, and that also includes cyber, which a new product, right? Where rates went up at an alarming rate, really challenging to manage from a budget standpoint. From coverage was restricted, limits were restricted. That's moderated, if not come down, because of generally just the change in marketplace with some of the opportunities not being as prevalent, being in the back market and such. But there's still a level of rate need and just general adequacy to fund for overall losses, you know, in the overall business. But there's a fair amount of capacity. There's new capacity entering. You know, we see that with new products emerging, insure tech coming into the market. So, you know, overall, I'd say a challenging market, but one that I'd hope that we're better at managing at least what is necessary weather continues to present some problems and challenges as we're really trying to evaluate what's the future of climate, you know, and I think overall, the industry has always relied on historical experience to predict the future. And that's really being challenged by all these things I know, whether it's weather, whether it's different litigation type of representation across claims driving severity, and then cyber just being a relatively new product in the market. It's really hard to rely on the old historical actuarial modeling price. So that's what we're into. And I think that's what the overall insured is experiencing is a lot of fluctuation around rate as uh, yeah. challenges and profitability and capacity are being balanced. And as an insurer, do you feel in any way squeezed? Obviously, we had that property hardened itself at 1-1, and obviously that had a knock-on effect. Do you feel that that has squeezed you and all of your peers in some way that the dynamics of this hardening was quite interesting, that insurance hardened itself because of its own experience, maybe and that's hardening started four and a half to five years ago. And then finally, reinsurers seem to have caught up and then hardened again, and obviously increasing everybody's net retentions and putting pressure back onto the insurers. Are you able now to pass on that new pressure that seems to have emanated from reinsurance this time? Do you feel that the market's going to allow you to push that back on to clients? Because obviously clients are really going to be fatigued in the year five or year six of rate rises. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and broking platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. 
Synergy is Eventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary. A platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated, which is why our Synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our Synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one. Very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it and create some meaningful value along the way, a Synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. Well, there's no question they're fatigued, right? It, it challenged her not only just around the fact that there's a constant app for additional rate that's going on and whether or not they've had the losses, they're, they're being asked to pay more. So that's yeah. a fatigue. And capacity is being restricted. So, you know, I would say the, the answer to that is that sometimes, right, a very political diplomatic answer, but at times that you were able to justify the rate, whether that's because of lost experience or because of a sheer lack of capacity, right? In cat-prone areas, there's generally a lack of insurance supply. So it's a supply and demand problem. But overall, the where it's showing up is every insurance company is really restricting how much capacity they put out. So the building of a program becomes more challenging, right? So that's in a larger client space. It's more challenging around getting rate and maybe their balance sheets are strong enough to take that risk. In the middle market space and other lines of business that we see, there's still a fair amount of capacity, a competitive market offering of packaged products or, or different areas of insurance coverage that allows clients to hedge their risk. And it's still at a strong level. And if, if it, there's one line in which it needs rate, that's mitigated by another line that doesn't need rate. So it depends, right? And, you know, overall, and it's varying depending on the size of client as well as the product they're buying. I spend a lot of time talking to reinsurers. Obviously, last year, they were all flagging with the 1-1 renewal that property was going to absolutely reset. And, and it certainly did. This year, they're warning that they're slightly more worried about casualty with particularly the emergence of some long-term trends and some back years not performing as well as they had originally thought they would. Do you feel that that's the next thing that you're going to feel some pressure again from reinsurers as you come into this next renewal? Do you think that's likely to have a bearing on the casualty market? We could, of course, right? So we are reliant on reinsurance. We are buying reinsurance to protect our balance sheet. And they're seeing the same trends that we're seeing. So while, you know, right now in in early December, it's not done. A lot of our treaties renew 1-1 across not only QB, but across the marketplace. So yes, there's going to be continued push on rate with the property not having as many caps this season in the fall here. That should at least mitigate some of the overall reinsurance trends that we've seen once you set back a year ago, the need for rate and the lack of capacity. But yeah, we're going to continue to see pushes on reinsurance rates because of the same trends I talked about with social inflation, especially on the casualty area. But one way it will show up to our end client, you know, auto is a great example of it because it's so relevant for people to see. But yeah, you'd argue that autos are more safer than they've ever been with the technology, but frequency is way up and, and the severity of claims is way up. So that's going to continue to put pressure on rates 
around auto insurance. So that, yeah. that will The world's changing so fast, isn't it? Of course, 20 years ago, you know, your fender did not contain a huge amount of electronics and sensors and all the things that now, and cameras and things that have, a little fender bender is very expensive these days, isn't it? But as, as again, that, that goes back to your point about the world's changing so quickly, isn't it? But again, it's interesting for you to say about, it sounds like the reinsurance renewal is going to be more consensual, that if you both agree that you're both, as reinsurers and insurers of casualty, you're agreeing that the fundamental picture has not been as good, or certainly for some of those back years, has not been as good as perhaps you thought when you first booked those back years. It's going to be consensual. There's not going to be something you're going to argue over. Yeah, I don't know if it's consensual. I mean, everyone has a different perspective, but it is harder to predict based on historical experience. I think we all tend to recognize that. Then the trend in which you're predicting the need is, whether it's on rate or coverage, I think it's where there's more dispute. And it's not over yet, right? I mean, I think, as we all know, the last two weeks of the year, we really find out where we all are, whether we're aligning or challenged in regards to what we think is the appropriate amount of rate there. And so that's what it comes down to. But yet we agree that there are trends that are demanding different areas of rate. Whether or not that's been already corrected a year ago is, is kind of the debate. There's a fair amount of pressure on reinsurance a year ago. And, um, yeah, we're hoping to see some of that start to flatten across the overall sector. But we need the trends to flatten, too. So we'll see. When you're looking at your across your portfolio and looking at the numbers, where are you happiest at the moment? Are you thinking, right, I'm really pleased with what's going on there. I want to do more of that. Yeah, so overall, happy with our segment. As I mentioned before, where we're the number two provider of multi-parallel crop insurance to U.S. Farmer. It's a great brand for 2B. There's a lot of recognition around our overall expertise and, and a strong value proposition in our claims handling. So really pleased with that sector of our business and continue to stay very committed to it. Also, with our commercial market, TNC has programs in it as well as our what we're serving as a more traditional middle-sized client base under a billion revenue type of area. And that has been an area where we're very committed and, and we need to be a little bit more clear and concise around our, our overall appetite and also our challenge a little bit more around the property that we're quoting in the, that area of the business. And then thirdly, we have our specialties line of business, which is servicing more of a larger end client base, but is and also our what we call our A&H product, which is medical stop loss and servicing employer group. That's been an extremely strong area, also a really good brand for QBE, a lot of reliability, overall something that we want to continue to grow. We've introduced new products in that space, and we'll continue to look at how do we capitalize on that. In the other areas of specialty, you know, while we've been committed in the management lines and professional liability, we've really grown that considerably in the last couple of years. And so that has been an area where we have a strong team, strong market reputation, and we'll continue to look to invest in that and grow it to service those larger end clients. So overall, there are opportunities in each segment that I mentioned. And I think that's what we're kind of in my early days looking at. Where do we look to build upon our strength and try to emphasize those and continue to create new capabilities in each of those? Just something within that professional line segment, DNO has been one of these ones that sort of has been a bit of a head scratcher for some of us. What do you think is really going on there? And should we look at this as some sort of canary in the coal mine for the whole market to say that, okay, you, rates will correct, but then they'll come off again like they always do? Or is something else at play here? Yeah, it's so frustrating, I know, for the client to try to manage overall budgets and then the same from a broker standpoint, the fluctuation. 
A lot of that is just general economics driven by supply and demand. So, you know, what we saw in the overall DNO market really pushed post COVID and the, you know, influx of opportunities around the SPAC market and just this massive increase in IPOs, right? That really drove some of the rates, right? And the competitiveness and, and opportunity to grow top line. Now there's the claim aspect of that that starts to follow. So unlike property, there's, you know, longer tail. Yeah. So that, that starts to really allow everyone to accept, did what we predict in price, was that right? And there was a bit of, no, it wasn't. We need to be more conservative. We need to get proper rate. This isn't what exactly what we envisioned it happening. So that's the challenge. And I would say it's more around kind of acknowledging that the marketplace looks to provide a solution with their best estimates they can. And then when in retrospect, when we look at those estimates, there's areas of correction. And that part, while sometimes frustrating, is the reality of you have to make a bet with best information you have at the time. And at times, that information is inaccurate, just whether what you're predicting are the claims that a company is going to have. How are those paying out? What are the challenges? And so that's what clients and brokers are feeling. That's part of the cycle. The, the alternative is nobody makes a bet at the time they present their risk to the marketplace and you go without coverage. Nobody wants that either. So you hear the term consistency. Consistency is showing up and being willing to go through the process. Rate is going to move up and down at times. And it is just the nature of the cycle, which is trying to make the best estimates you can on the overall insurance product availability. And some of that, while we would like to not see 80% increases and then decreases, being able to offer a sustainable product solution, which I see that we've continued to do, doesn't look the same every year. But the availability of capacity has remained, which is a real positive for overall for the economy and for our clients, because the worst is that you don't have any capacity and you have to retain all that risk yourself. So working through it, but it is the nature of what the product is going to always be. It does seem a bit strange, but when you look at market observers saying that, why is this happening? Well, because there were lots of IPOs in 21, but there were less in 22. So therefore we had to try and hit budget. You'd think we'd moved on from that kind of world. You'd think that the budgets would therefore adjust downwards and no one would feel under pressure to hit a budget. That has led to frustration suddenly over, there was obviously a famous comment from Patrick Tien and Lloyd's, for example, saying that some of this behavior, who used the word moronic, it was just a strong language. So again, it is the nature of the market, but do you think the market has necessarily covered itself in glory in terms of the goal is to have a sustainable product, but should we be having such large fluctuations in price within that? You know, look, I don't agree that it's just driven by budget. You know, I think that's an oversimplification of this. Yeah, no, it does sound like that to me. It sounded like that. We have been very disciplined about our DNO and management liability and have sacrificed top line growth for profitability and have stood back as we've seen rates go down what we believe is technical price. And coming out of the broker world, I saw a number of carriers that were committed to the pricing, which they felt was adequate. Now that's confidence in what you believe are your historical trends or confidence in how you're predicting towards the future or partnership with reinsurance. There's a number of things that go into your pricing model that allow you to have confidence and discipline around the rate. That also obviously arguably goes that you have staff that is empowered and can do that. So I think the the issue really around the rate, which is that term, it's moronic, it goes up, it comes down, it's super frustrating. That was an extreme level for sure. And we saw that also on cyber. And some of that is, again, it's related to the fact that there's bets being made around what is the right overall trend that we're going to see 
payout in the future. And that's sometimes they're wrong. And with more information that sometimes presents itself two years later, say, okay, we can correct this. There's too much rate. You'd like to be better and more accurate around that. An easy example is we've done that in property. And then we changed the modeling and said, oh, wait, we got that wrong. There's going to be storms that go through the state of New York, for instance, and that's a catastrophic prone area. We need to quadruple the pricing in you know, New York City area. That was not the thought before Superstorm Sandy. So that's super frustrating to an individual company and the experience, but it is this recalibration of what pricing needs based on a number of new information that comes to light. So we'd like to keep those within a better bandwidth, I'd say, but there is this generally inherent problem that with more information, the market's going to price the product differently year over year. And sometimes when there are big changes in supply and demand, of course, the market can overshoot on the upside and on the downside. Absolutely. And yeah, and that's the, the driver, right? The more supply comes in, there's nothing you can do about that. And we're seeing that at times, right? Supply will enter the market, whether it's adequate supply or naive capacity, there's always some of that, right? So there is some behavior that sometimes is undisciplined as new supply enters the market, but that's only one component I see as a number of components to drive this rate game, which can be challenging to manage year over year. And my vision of that is that let's be very clear and concise and communicative around this very early in the process. And I think that's what I advise any client to do is just get the information early enough that each year you're able to evaluate the product within five months of the effective date so that you know what's happening. But it will change year over year, unfortunately, and that can be a, a challenge to manage for their own risk appetite reasons. Obviously, you've got your broking experience to fall back on here, and you'd know that a lot of those large clients have got captives of their own now, if we're entering sixth year or seventh year, perhaps in some classes of rate hardening, is there a danger that we're losing relevance or are you not worried about that? Will demand keep constant when a lot of those businesses could be putting business, obviously they will have increased their utilization of captives certainly over the last four or five years. Yeah, it's a good point, Mark. I mean, there is an element of, I mean, this has moved, trended even down into really the middle market space. So there's a yeah. lot more captive use. If you read number of periodicals out there, right, most of the broker market will talk about the fact that they've seen interest in captive skyrocket over the past couple of years, right? And there's all sorts of different trends and what products go in there from benefits to B&C lines. And so there is an area of which you know, insurers are moving into their own captive formation or at times even into group captives to retain more risk or to have a different solution around the risk in which they have, which pulls some premium out of the market. If there is a role for carriers in that. Um, it does take the overall equation of, of premium changes it, but there's been enough new product emergence still coming into the market that I don't see it losing relevance, but I see it changing a bit how everyone prices risk or how they look at risk, you know, at what point, how much risk is the client retaining, different products will go into captives for different reasons. So it's an, another part of the conversation in which we need to be relevant is how do we understand that part of what they need to retain and how does that affect their buying decisions differently? Because it, it might. They're retaining more risk in some lines that might affect their appetite of how they retain and price risk on the other lines. And that's what yeah. we're charged to understand. I suppose fundamentally, it's never a bad thing to have a client who has really invested a lot of their own capital and intellectual property in actually understanding their own risk. It has to be good, ultimately, doesn't it? You're right, Mark. I mean, there's something interesting about that. The captive formation creates a different level of conversation. We're, we're in one of the same in some ways, right? There's aspects around 
managing a captive and managing the surplus that it needs and the ratings it needs, that, you know, different aspects around what are the requirements. Um, which is a big component of captives too, is that is it a product that's rated, they rated, they need that for their own coverage and how do they evidence that to their suppliers and, and their um, overall vendors. So yeah, they're a little bit more, I think, understanding of the insurance company type of situation as they form their own captives and start to see what goes into that from a regulatory standpoint. Something we should talk about is you mentioned earlier was the cyber market. It seems that things are moving along quite quickly. Obviously, we had a correction there and then rates seem to be coming off. I don't know if quite so dramatically as DNO did, but you can fill me in on that. But in a wider sense, we've also had big developments in cyber, still being the fastest growing class by quite a long way in the reinsurance side of things. And in terms of, because we'd have previously might have worried that insurance might run out of capacity, that reinsurers might not be able to get their head around some of the big systemic risks and the big catastrophe risks that they're being asked to take on, that we might hit some kind of capacity buffers. But certainly over the last 12 months, I don't know if you're as encouraged as I am to see this development of ILS and sort of higher level of understanding and what seems to be a greater level of confidence from investors or ultimate capital investors in the quality of the modeling that's going into that systemic, more catastrophic type of risk. This is in cyber specifically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, generally, there's more purchasing of cyber, right? So I think the understanding of what cyber risk presents in the general marketplace, the general economy has increased tremendously. I mean, I remember when we first were rolling out cyber products, you know, you're quoting hundreds and one in every, whatever it was, one to hundred felt like it was buying, right? So um, now we have to see all sorts of middle market products. We're seeing that offered continuously across all different segments. It's not just services. They're not just certain lines in certain financial areas. It's across all clients. So that volume of insurance purchase has gone up. And so some of the modeling around it, and it's a risk-based product being, you really need to have risk controls in place. So there's something quite fundamental about the product in that your client and you're managing risk and really in a consulting area, there's a lot of good overall questions that come out of the cyber underwriting process that allow you to differentiate your own culture, which we feel is pretty basic around some aspects around your potential exposure to get hacked, right? Or to have ransomware attacks that increases your risk likelihood that would strive to price. So there's a fundamental part of the cyber product that starts to, I think, show up in the underwriting process that is understandable on how do we control, how do we invest, and what's the return on some of these investments to get one coverage and to protect our firm. Um, the problem is it doesn't feel like it's a sure thing, right, that we're going to be completely protected against outside risk. And so um, there's a real interest in obviously trying to hedge some of that risk in the insurance market. And that's where, you know, stronger modeling and, and the volume of purchasing is going to really help. You feel encouraged that as the market grows, it's not going to hit any kind of capital buffers that you're going to be able to get reinsurers who are more comfortable and obviously cap bond investors and those kind of people to become more comfortable with cyber over time. I believe so. It's hard for me to predict what reinsurers are going to do. I yeah. would not want to be in that place. And overall, it feels as if there's still amount of capital interest, but at the same time, you know, and a good investor is going to say, do I really understand this space? And is this the space I want to be in? And the insurance industry in general gets a lot of questions on whether or not they fully understand the space. So I think there is a fair amount of new entrants coming in, but it is 
a very quickly evolving place, as you said, right? What's exposed? What are the potential losses in that area? It's a new product. It's just getting understood. There's some significant losses that the industry faces. And there's a fair amount of questions on what should be covered and shouldn't be covered ongoing, right? And that's a debate the industry, which really points to, do we want a sustainable product in the marketplace and you can't cover all non-predictable losses, right? So it's very much evolving and depending on where those conversations go and what it exposes the ultimate capital to will be how it's sustainable and how much investors are attracted to the space. We're always talking about talent and particularly the demographics of talent in our industry. And we're always worried about us hitting some kind of cliff edge where if everybody suddenly retires, what's your way of going about bridging that talent gap that has been so well described over the last four or five years, particularly as a less experienced workforce is coming into positions of authority? Yeah, one, it's a very passionate area for me personally. And I think, you know, when I joined the industry, there were training programs and then they were really put away on the sidelines and no one was investing for a number of years. And we've seen that start again. QB is investing in really a next generation program as well as an intern program. And these are opportunities to recruit talent into the industry, give them an exposure through an intern program that runs through the summer, and then give them an opportunity to join in a learning capacity being you're going to start out with a fair amount of technical aspects you need to learn from coverage to rating and try to make a career within the industry. And we feel to be in a, a company is a great place to do that, to understand the fundamentals. Overall, the industry needs to do as much as possible on this. We have, you know, a generation that's retiring and a, a real gap in between around some of the new talent that's coming in. Cyber is a great area for new talent because nobody has a great level of expertise around it since it's a relatively new product. And I see some really strong new talent joining us and some of our, you know, overall our broker partners too that are coming out of different fields, whether it's areas in security, whether it's areas in, in different types of backgrounds and majors because they're attracted to consulting and realize the insurance industry really is an area to consult clients. And they can have a lot of expertise quite quickly within the insurance industry in that product. But we, we need to continue to do that. I went to the RIM, National RIM event here. It was held in Atlanta, which is where I live, and asked the local universities to come to our, generally our kind of our social cocktail hour, where we had various clients and broker partners and insurers come into the room with our GB executives. And they had a risk management program, which, you know, the University of Georgia and Georgia State had. They were very keen on coming. But a couple of the other local universities were a little bit more reluctant. Look, this is a phenomenal industry to make a career in. We need good English majors. We need good economic majors. We need people in finance. But just it's a place of real resiliency for your career. And it's the study of economics. And it's truly consulting clients on risk. And there's never been more interest in risk than now following the pandemic. So I'm very optimistic about what we can do versus kind of the history of everyone perceiving insurance as someone carrying a gold leather briefcase that opens it up and tries to sell you life insurance, you know, or or overall they think of their own personal homeowners. So it's so much more than that. And I really hope that we can attract a lot more talent and continue, particularly while there's so many great people to learn from. But those people are people who know the ins and outs and it takes them 15 minutes to quote unquote bill an hour, right? Their experience is invaluable and we need to do a really better job of getting people in to learn from them while we can. 
It's good that you say that there's that opportunity with something like cyber because it's so new. Of course, having gray hairs actually is not an advantage. It's a disadvantage. So it's quite good. And obviously, it's something that is of interest to that young graduate generation to say, wow, this is actually quite cool to get them in. And of course, then they could become great property underwriters or, or whatever else. I don't know if it goes for a cool mark, but it is on its way. It's getting better. <laughs> but we think so. We're hoping. That's our aspiration. And these days, what are you looking for in a candidate? Presumably the qualities of a candidate of today, you know, a graduate candidate or school-leaving candidate today, have they changed to what they were perhaps, you know, when you and I graduated? I don't know that they've changed as much other than there are many more programs out of school that are supporting majors in risk management. We're seeing a lot more colleges around the country have risk management programs. And that's interesting, right? It shows kind of the interest in that being a real strong career for, you know, young graduates as well as something around risk that is starting to be an opportunity that people are attracted to. So that's probably the one that's the biggest difference. The virtual environment is probably the other one. You know, a lot of debate out in the marketplace around how do people learn? What's the mentoring look like if you're remote and we're not in an office? And, yeah, I go back and forth a little bit on this because this is a generation that has gone through COVID and has really learned entirely through a computer or online. And so while that was our experience of learning completely in person, it was a very inflexible environment. You know, I believe there is something to be said about hands-on. I've, I've told some of the new TB underwriters that booked our training program the other week, and it's to go out to see businesses. I know as a young woman coming out of school, I had never worked in a manufacturing plan. I didn't know what a certain processor might look like. So you need to go with technicians, whether they're engineers, auditors. You need to understand the holistic offering that insurance really sets up for a client and understand the MDM's experience. But sitting in the office and gaining insight, it's just not going to show up the same way. So there'll be opportunities that will be beneficial because maybe you're exposed to way more calls than you were. But how do you retain that information? How do you make sure your career is being visible to senior people, such as myself? I'm not going to know people most likely unless they see them in the office. And so, you know, I'm in New York, Fairmount, and there are certain people that are there that I see all the time. And I just inherently know them better and know what they do. And they might have a challenge and we're talking it over at a coffee in the morning. You know, unfortunately, there's something about informality, which is the world that we grew up in that, you know, you learn a lot. And I know as a leader... I've always really valued that, you know, an elevator ride and ask someone, what are they working on? They tell me and I thought, oh, wow, that's super important. Or I didn't really appreciate that. And that's an exposure to senior management that is important for both sides, both the person who's learning as well as senior management to understand what people are faced with. That is less structured and formal, but very, very valuable to your overall career and experience. So it looks like, yes, because we've got this much more digital native generation, but Sometimes they need to be kind of almost not forced, but just encouraged to go and do face to face things. And of course, and some of the face to face only people need to be encouraged to be more digital as well. So it's this kind of hybrid. Yeah, I think that's right. I think encouraged is the right word. Be open minded, put yourself into a different place than you were. My ask is that I don't want to take away flexibility. I think flexibility has been very important to the industry. It's been very important to people who caretake, whether it's family or children. It is allowed for a different level of, you know, I think discipline and ability to work in a much better way. 
But at the same time, I really believe in connectivity. And I think that we gain from operating like a team and knowing each other more than through a virtual screen. And so our ask is that we want to see people start to really connect and we're asking that they learn differently, both sides, to your point, both in person as well as virtually. Julie, my last question, I know we're quite close on time, would be, you mentioned earlier about having people in your career, earlier in your career, championing you, believing in you, and perhaps, you know, giving you promotion perhaps before you thought you were ready, they knew you were ready, and then clearly you were. Is that something you want to build into what you're doing at QBE? It is something I want to build in. I do believe strongly that you give people opportunity when, you know, we call it 50, 70% ready, not 100% ready, right? You have to put people in stretch positions. Some are willing to raise their hand and some are not, right? And you have to have a process in which you're willing to look of overall at, at your talent and, and look at certain skill sets that you need and then be willing to help them and let them develop. So I believe in that strongly. I, I was very fortunate in a couple of times. And there are times where I was asked to do a job that I, I wasn't sure I wanted. And I trusted people around me to say, you know, this is going to be a good opportunity for you to round out your development. And I think those things are important. You know, it's easy to be comfortable in a certain area and that's a fine career path. But I, I do think if you're aspiring and you're looking to learn. Sometimes it's not an obvious job. You have to think about lateral moves. You have to think about getting out of your technical comfort zone. Leading people is certainly one area, but not everyone's area. So I think all of these conversations around talent, particularly as we're bringing in a lot of new talent into the industry, really have to be looked at in a less traditional manner and think about how do we develop people how are we really good at pushing people much earlier than we have? I mean, it gets to a point where it's a very high bar to clear to get promoted at times. And it shouldn't be that way. We need to allow people to take a chance and not necessarily be perfect at it at the beginning and learn within the job. It's a good place to end, I think, acknowledging that we're never going to be 100% ready for anything, are we quite? Because we just can't, and particularly what we've already said earlier in, in the podcast about, we know that the world is changing at a faster rate. And so we never have the quite perfect amount of information anyway. So Julie, I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And well, do pick in some time to speak to us at some point in the future because the market's moving very fast. It is. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking to you as well. Great conversation. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.